Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they'll show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that, even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. This week has been a whole whirlwind, but I am actually very excited about the topic that we are covering this week because I have strong personal feelings about it. I gathered so, as much. Yeah, could you tell in, in the in the things that I was writing? So let's just hop into it then. Um, what what do you what do you picture when I say core civic? What comes to mind? That I mean, that sounds like it should be some sort of like voter registration organization or like petition signing you know the people who stand outside the library and they're like will you sign my petition like maybe the people who hire them yeah what about what about the geo group i mean aside from a thinly veiled like cover for captain planet and his team (laughs) that's funny like yeah no it sounds like it should be some sort of environmentalist group or like globalization or something like that Exactly. They both kind of sound like some civic-minded group or, or, or a global organization, like you said. Um, somebody working to, to better the world, you know. It's like a, a pretty modern, slick moniker for two businesses that are giants in an industry that I do not think should exist. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's fair. Um, although to their, to their, I guess credit or defense i bet you they both think that they are kind of making the world a better place in their own messed up and twisted way um see core civic and the geo group or geo group or geo group i actually wasn't sure how it was pronounced Mm. um they are the two largest private prison companies in the united states so what does that mean um Well, in the United States, there are two types of prisons. There are public and private prisons, not unlike schools. Public prisons, like public schools, are primarily funded with tax revenues and they're owned and operated by government agencies. While private prisons are owned and operated by for-profit companies, such as the aforementioned CoreCivic and GEO Group. 
For private prisons, usually what happens is a state or a federal government needs to outsource the operation and the maintenance of one or more of their prisons or correctional facilities, enticing the involvement of these for-profit companies. Private entities purchase prisons from the government and become responsible for their staffing and their upkeep needs. All the staffing needs, from the warden to the correctional officer to the maintenance staff, are employees of this one company. They're contractors. And the state and the state or the federal government provides funding to cover the cost of keeping the inmates incarcerated. And then the company treats this funding like revenue and then, well, basically tries to run the prison at a profit. So I, I've already like outright stated that I don't think private prisons should be a thing. So I'm going to just really put my bias out there up front for everybody to see. I swear I am going to try and tell the story and communicate this information as fairly and as best as I possibly can. But I have very strong feelings about this. Um, it was one of the things that I, I focused on in my studies in my master's degree in criminal justice. This like there were a couple major fields that I that I focused on and this was one of them. Um, and then, you know, I follow it in the news and kind of see what's going on with that. It's just I've always got this idea in the on the back burner of my mind uh, of private prisons because <laughs> anyway, 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 anyway. I don't want to unfairly influence thinking on this any more than I already have because I'm sure that I have. So I'm not going to share much more of our opinions until maybe maybe we get to the end of this series because I think we're going to break this up into a couple of different episodes and uh, keep this one probably a little leaner, a little meaner, a little shorter, get to the information um, as we talk about the history and development of the private prison system. And then uh, we'll uh, cover some other aspects of it in future episodes. So now that I've put that out there and laid out the agenda, I guess, let's get into the, the actual topic at hand, which is like, how did we get to this place? How in the world did we manage to privatize prisons? I mean, anybody with even a rudimentary knowledge of American history knows that in the early 19th century in America, cotton was king. We were exporting more cotton than all the other nations combined, and the ever-expanding frontier opened more and more land on which to capitalize. And Louisiana? Well, she was in the thick of it. Part of the economic powerhouse cotton belt, money was flowing into Louisiana from northern and European investors, and at one point, New Orleans had the densest concentration of banking capital in the United States. But that magic wouldn't last. In 1837, following years of boom for the cotton kings, a reduction in the price of cotton, a catastrophic wheat shortage, and rising interest rates from New York's banks combined to produce a nearly decade-long economic depression. And it's in that environment that we encounter America's first privatized prison. In 1844, the state of Louisiana leased its penitentiary, and most importantly, all of its inmates, to a company called McCatton, Pratt, and Ward. The company took over responsibility for the operation of the prison, including feeding and clothing the inmates, and in turn was empowered to use inmate labor to further its own purposes. Inmates worked from sunrise to sunset in the penitentiary's textile factory 
with harsh consequences laid on those who could not keep pace. Uh, One prisoner wrote that these men laid aside all objects of reformation and reinstated the most cruel tyranny to eke out the dollars and cents of human misery. After the Civil War, this trend of privatization grew stronger. Prison populations were soaring. Black codes and explicitly racist laws were driving significant numbers of black men into the system and essentially back into slavery. And the states just couldn't afford to run their penitentiaries on their own. But the 13th Amendment provided a convenient loophole. The amendment abolished slavery except as punishment for a crime. So instead of filling jails and large, expensive prisons, states sent their prisoners to private plantations and company-run labor camps. They picked cotton, built railroad tracks and levees, and mined coal, all for the profit of private business owners. And this quest for profit led to stories of gut-twisting mistreatment and cruel punishments. And I won't get into them because discussion of torture makes me incredibly uncomfortable, Um, But suffice it to say that these prisoners were subjected to torture to ensure their compliance and increase their motivation to work. Yeah, I as I was reading some of these accounts when we were researching this, it's it's. I mean, real horrendous torture of the worst kinds that you could possibly imagine. It's I think. I think sometimes there's this like mentality that we kind of split torture into different tiers and like some torture is not so bad yeah. and some torture is really bad. This was really bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're, if you're one and, of those tier kinds of folks, this was really bad. If you're me, yeah. we just skipped those paragraphs because they make me physically ill, but yeah. 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 No. It, and yeah. Horrendous. Um, yeah. Somehow, Somehow, this system was even deadlier than slavery, like the whole institution of slavery, at least by percentages. Like literally, from 1870 to 1901, roughly 3,000 Louisiana convicts, most of whom were black, died while being forced to work for a a Samuel Lawrence James. Now, pre-Civil War, very few planters owned more than a thousand convicts and there are no records indicating any of these owners lost 3,000 people so yeah I mean those records were well kept because human chattel are valuable or in the vernacular and mentality of the time I don't want it to seem like I am currently saying that there should ever even exist human chattel but um (laughs) humans humans they were expensive through this arrangement the annual uh, convict death rate in the south which is where the majority of these these plantation uh, prisons were um, they ranged from 16 percent all the way up to 25 percent one in four simply put there there was no incentive for the lessees convicts were leased to companies or individuals to do this work, right? So there was no incentive for the lessees to to not literally work convicts into the grave. Um, in 1883, one Southern man told the National Conference of Charities and Correction, before the war, we owned the Negroes. If a man had a good Negro, 
he could afford to take care of him. If he was sick, get a doctor. But these convicts, we don't own them. One dies, get another. And that really highlights the, the, the twisted, messed up reality of the situation. At least, at least when slaves were bought and sold, the owners had to expend resources, money, in order to get them. They had inherent value represented by how much the slave owner paid for them. So there was some small reason for slave owners to at least put minimal effort into keeping their slaves alive. But once that cost was removed, why would the lessees care if they lost a convict? It was a infinite free resource for them. And I am in no way trying to say or imply that slaves had some sort of great arrangement because the slave owners had some incentive to keep them alive. It was shitty all the way around. Right. Let's be very clear yeah. here. Like, this is one of those situations where, like, we can compare the two and they can both be shitty. Yeah. Like, one does not make the other better. They're just right. both right. bad. Yeah. Just, I can see in the future that, that particular little paragraph being pulled out of context and used to <laughs> completely annihilate my life. Don't worry. I don't so. think we're popular enough for cancel culture to really uh, take a hold. I think we're all right. <laughs> For now. For now. For now. Maybe someday, someday, One of these days. my dream is that we will be popular enough for people to wish to silence us because we messed up. Yes. <laughs> One of these days. <sighs> okay, so the states. What benefit did this arrangement have for the states? Why on earth would they allow their inmates to drive profits for private business owners rather than for the state itself? Well, of course... These companies gave a cut of their profits to the state to um, remind the state of the beneficial arrangement. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. a little bit of a handshake there. From 1890 to 1904, profits from leasing convicts made up 10% of Alabama's state budget. <laughs> Whoa. In 1886, the U.S. Commissioner of Labor reported that in places where convict leasing was practiced, the average revenues were nearly four times the cost of running prisons. That's incredible. By the, by the 1920s, however, the tension and the torsion around private prisons took the forefront. Free workers protested and even rioted because convict labor was taking their jobs. Like, labor reform advocates protested the working conditions, and states became jealous of the profit that these private companies were seeing. These privatization deals, as they existed at the time, they were all but eradicated. A little interjection here. Yes, we know that we're talking about convict leasing in the 18 and 1900s and that today's private prison systems are vastly different. But those early practices are what laid the foundation for the private systems that we have today. And they established a culture in which it was not only acceptable, but ideal to turn a profit from the penal system, to turn prison into an industry. In fact, we can draw almost a, a direct line from these leasing programs, if you will, um, to the modern prison industry. And we talked about it at, 
very early on, actually, yeah. about the role of, of policing and how the original police were, they were meant to capture slaves. <laughs> like, that's, that was what they did. They did. Um, at least a large portion of them. Um, and, and so that sort of inherent and explicit racism is has been part of of the justice system from the beginning now we also talked about how you know (laughs) it isn't necessarily consciously it doesn't mean that the current justice system is consciously still following those trends and patterns right um but to say that that didn't influence it that that didn't to deny that the current justice system and the parts of it grew out of these very fertile soils of, of racist horror, right, would be to fail to recognize how the justice system developed into what it is today. Like, you, you have to acknowledge that. Yeah. And it, we also have to acknowledge, too, and, you know, call me a mostly socialist if you want to, but we have to acknowledge the inherent capitalism that has been present in the penal system from that very beginning, from the time when we set people out to bring slaves back because they were human capital to when we were leasing our convicts to when states eventually got wise in this, in, in the the twenties and took over those operations. And we still have prisons that operate as factories today. Still many of the things that we buy at the store are produced by Prisoners are treated, again, still as human capital. Slavery slavery is profitable. People wouldn't do it if it wasn't. Um, And so all all of these things just lay that foundation. Right, exactly. Slave labor in general or forced labor, if we don't want to use the S word. Um, Forced labor is actually more productive in, in the sort of things that they were using these slaves for. Um, either literal slaves or <laughs> slaves in everything but name right. um, in the form of convicts. Like whenever you can motivate a worker through terror or through threats of physical harm or through actual physical harm, they tend to do these simple tasks like picking cotton or mining ore or coal or whatever they were being used for faster because... I mean, it's either do the job or face the torture. And as we already mentioned, there was nothing keeping the lessees or the owners from working these people to death, like right. literally to death. Actually, I want to talk about one of the largest private prisons uh, or the precursors, right? Uh, one of the largest precursors to the private prison industry. Yeah, so let's let's talk about this this precursor here. It was run by Terrell Don Hutto, or T Don, as he's listed online. <laughs> I can't. I just can't. Uh, <laughs> Hutto ran Hutto 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 Jabba the Hutto. I can't. It, it just as soon as I saw it. He's... <laughs> it is now. <laughs> Right. 
Hutto ran a cotton plantation the size of Manhattan. Most of the convicts of this prison were black and picked cotton from dawn until dusk for absolutely no pay. One popular field song that they sang was called Johnny Won't You Ramble. And it had lyrics like, Old Master, don't you whip me, I'll give you half a dollar. Hutto's family had a house on the plantation as well, and they actually had a houseboy who was one of the unpaid convicts, and it was his job to serve the family. Now, this, again, was technically before the official beginnings of private prisons, but it shares all of those hallmarks of the industry. Again, this was a prison in the South. In some states, some inmates were even given whips and guns and given the authority to beat and torture any prisoner who didn't meet the labor quotas. At the time, actually, most prisons in the South were, well, they were plantations. So Hutto, Hutto wasn't really doing anything particularly unique uh, in that regard. What makes Hutto special is that he was effective. In fact, he did such a good job in Texas running this plantation that Arkansas actually hired him to run their entire prison system, which was entirely plantation-based. Hutto learned in his time in Texas that corners could always be cut in service to the bottom line. Hutto specifically empowered some inmates to manage and punish other prisoners, giving them control of the prisoners' living quarters. Conditions in these prisons bred cruelty, and sometimes these inmates would, they'd use knives to keep other inmates under control. The only reason that arrangement existed was so that Hutto could save money that would otherwise be sent paying guards. Hutto ran Arkansas's prisons, putting money into the state coffer. His success with the program was such that he drew the attention of two businessmen with a new idea. To found a corporation that would run prisons and be publicly traded on the stock market. The year that Hutto was operating that Manhattan-sized plantation with black men singing field songs and picking cotton while he and his family lived in that plantation house with a houseboy... That was 1967. The Beatles' All You Need Is Love dominated the airwaves, setting a perfect background for the summer of love. And in the 1970s and the 1980s, a push toward privatization of prisons began again. In many cases, it began with individual services like food and medical care being brought into individual prisons as a cost-saving or efficiency measure. But very soon... The Federal Bureau of Prisons and some states were outsourcing the operations for entire jails and prisons. Hutto would go on to found the Corrections Corporation of America, alongside those two businessmen, Thomas W. Beasley and Robert Krantis. And that foundation, that company, uh, got investments from the Tennessee Valley Authority and Vanderbilt University, among others. In 1984, 
the state of Tennessee contracted with Corrections Corporation of America to run its facility in Hamilton County and began the astronomic growth of prison as industry. By 1996, 13 states had outsourced some portion of their penal systems. By 2004, 34 states had some level of privatization. And these facilities included not only prisons, but juvenile centers and other correctional facilities under contract with federal and state and local governments. In 2019, 30 states and the federal government incarcerated 115,428 people in private prisons run by four major corporations. Geo Group, CoreCivic, which is formerly Corrections Corporation of America, they rebranded in 2016, LaSalle Corrections, and Management and Training Corporation, which is the weirdest name for a company that manages prisons. Right. It's almost like they don't want you to know what they do. Exactly. Um, and when we say... That's a little conspiracy. Right? A little, con- little conspiracy. We do a little bit a little of that around here. A little conspiracy. And when we say major corporations, like we mean big time economic players. CoreCivic generated $1.91 billion with a, a B in revenue in 2020. And Geo Group brought in $2.35 billion in 2020. These companies couldn't exist if it weren't for a number of factors. One, the constant cost-cutting and savings that the U.S. government strives for in order to be responsible with taxes, that sort of thing. But also things like the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. The U.S. has a massive, massive prison population by... Based, you know, as a measured as a percentage of the overall population, um, the largest in the world, and that discrepancy is driving this need for more and more prisons, more and more prisons. And as we know, the war on drugs disproportionately and intentionally targeted, or at least when it first started, it targeted uh, people of color uh, in order to either force the disenfranchisement of them or to divide or, or to force a wedge in their their communities in their neighborhoods and and cause the chaos for for political gain really so the the story of a private prison or private prisons at large is tied together with more than just the idea of how to best pursue justice. In fact, I would argue that the idea of a private prison is almost completely divorced of pursuing justice in the best possible way. Now, next week, we'll probably talk about some of the arguments for, you know, why private prisons exist and why people say that they should exist. Um, But, you know, from what we can see, just based on the history, justice has never been part of their driving like goal. It's about profit and it's about maximizing profit. Um, just as just about any business is. Yeah. I think that's what, what makes this ring the wrongest for me. Right. That's what gives me such a a nasty taste in my mouth is the idea of prison for profit. Um, because you know, I'm not, I'm not anymore opposed to privatizing things 
than the average person. I don't have any problem with private schools if they serve a particular need. I don't have a problem with private health care if it serves a particular need. Um, but there is no need for us to capitalize and profit off of something that is supposed to be rehabilitating, reforming um, people who have made poor life choices and trying to get them in some shape to be back out in, in the world and be, be contributing citizens. And so um, when... When you're doing anything for profit and the the mode of operation is cutting corners and spending as little as possible to make as much as possible, I don't I don't see a world in which that functions to do the thing that the justice system is supposed to do. Right. And we'll we'll talk about what some of those cost cutting measures look like uh, next week, because, yes, I mean, private prisons are still cutting as many costs as they can. Nothing has changed in the capitalism mindset since capitalism has existed. You make the most money that you can. And if you aren't bounded and guided by either legal ethics, I don't know a better phrase for it, a law that makes you act ethically, or at least some sort of strong ethical guidance from the person in charge, which I've yet to see really, um, you're not going to make the decisions that are best for rehabilitation because that's not what keeps the doors open and the lights on and we'll talk about what like some of the secondary effects of running a prison for profit are as well next week because just think about this chew on this while until we come back with with more information i i told you this one's going to be a lean and mean episode and we're, we're actually already at the end or pretty close to it um if you are running an industry that relies on having a prison population then you are incentivized to make sure that there is a prison population mm-hmm And we know that in the United States of America, money and the use of money is protected by the First Amendment. You are exercising your First Amendment right whenever you spend money, specifically in relation to like donating to campaigns. And we also know that companies and businesses are considered as people, which means they have First Amendment protections in the United States, which means that they can therefore donate money to campaigns to exercise their First Amendment right. So if you're a company that exists to house prisoners and gets paid for housing prisoners and makes money off of the labor from these prisoners that you house, you're going to exercise your First Amendment protected right and donate money to the politicians and to the policies and lobby for the policies that help your bottom line. These companies, by existing to make money off of prison populations, guarantee a prison population. Yep. Just some some food for thought as we go into next week. Speaking of thought, you know, if people have thoughts, what should they do with those thoughts? If they would like to share with us their burning thoughts or how wrong we are, they can reach us in many, many, many different ways. We are available on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
You can find us by searching Fireside Breakdowns. Uh, or if your, if your message cannot be contained by the small boundaries of social media, if 240 characters is not enough for you to yell at us on Twitter, you can send us an email directly to firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. We'll read it because it'll be the first one we get. No. Uh, <laughs> I guess that just means that nobody has been mad enough at us yet to need to send us an email. Right. That's exactly how I'm taking it is that we have just nailed the, we've just hit the nail on the head so well in the past 34 episodes that nobody has any need to, to speak up and let us know how wrong we are. But if you'd like to tell, let us know how right we are, we would very much appreciate it if you did so in the form of a positive review on the listening platform of your choice, because positive reviews drive traffic. Traffic means more people listening to this. More people listening to this means more information for more people to have a foundational understanding about these critical and important issues that affect our society and all of us every single day. So spread the word. Leave a good review. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes. All right. I think I think that about covers the entirety of the plug. Robin, what's the good news this week? I know what the good news is. I know you do. You do. Yeah. It's okay. Okay, so, I mean, we have to admit, right, this is probably subjectively good news. John thinks it's good news, at least. I do. Uh, but in January of this year, the Biden administration ordered the Department of Justice to end its reliance on private prisons and acknowledge the central role that government has played in implementing discriminatory housing policies. Uh, I refer you to our discussion above about how those housing policies and the prisons kind of work together. Anyway, uh, in remarks before signing the orders, Biden said that the United States government needs to change its whole approach on the issue of racial equity. He added that the nation is less prosperous and secure because of the scourge of systemic racism. Hey, our first few episodes cover that topic. You know, if you need to know more about that, we talk about housing and the justice system in there. So check them out. And medical. And yeah, medical as well. we do. The order to end the reliance on privately run prisons directs the, the attorney general not to renew Justice Department contracts with privately operated criminal detention facilities. Uh, that move will effectively revert the Justice Department to the same posture that it held at the end of the Obama administration. Now, whether or not this will have any real impact on Core Civic or Geo Group remains to be seen. This is only an executive order, and the next president could just decide to reverse it. Plus, it only applies to federal contracts. States can still choose to contract out to private prisons if they want. But for now, we're treating this as good news that things are moving in a direction in which we do not profit off of the criminal justice system. Correct. I think, I think we need to remember, as Americans that some things aren't meant to be profited from. It is not ethical to profit off of them. I think our prison population is a, is a pretty clear example of why that's a slippery slope. Again, that is very a, a strong personal bias, mm -hmm. and we have clearly shown yes. that it is hard for us to detach ourselves from that bias for this particular topic. But there's also other industries 
industries, quote, <laughs> services, really, services, that if that profit should not be their their primary motivation. Things like the postal service comes to mind. <laughs> I don't think that the postal service should be run for profit necessarily. Right. If it takes a loss, whatever. It's a service that we all need. It's okay if we're paying for it. Right. Right. It doesn't have to pay for itself. At least that's my personal opinion so, on my the opinion. on the matter. I, I mean, we we need it right. so. Like, I, I feel like I've never really considered a world in which I would be mad if the post office, like, if the postal service didn't turn a profit. Right? Like, it, how dare. Gasp. As long as my letters are delivered to my house, it, good. That's all I, yeah. all I need from you guys. Yeah. Really in a perfect world, you're not costing a bajillion dollars, but. Right. But, like, hey. We don't live in a know, perfect world. I, I pay some good taxes. I pay some good taxes so that my postal worker can either walk or drive their truck to deliver my mail and take my mail. And I am happy to do that. I'm waiting for the day that postal service get like those shoes that have the wheels in them. What are they? Wheelies, wheelies. or heelies or whatever. Standard, right? And we just see a bunch of postal workers like oh subtly rollerblading around the town, oh tripping gosh. over sidewalks and going face planting. When, when the older Gen Zs become postal workers, that's exactly what's going to happen. I used to think those shows were, those shoes were so cool. Never got any. No. Never got any. Never got any. They were really expensive whenever they were cool. Yeah. Like, just way out of our range. But holy crap. Anyway, we have totally diverted from the purpose of this entire podcast. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for your attention. We hope you enjoyed this somewhat abbreviated edition of fireside breakdowns and we will talk to you next week until that point everybody take care of each other Bye.